I work as a health educator, so part of the health promotion team there at Thorn Harbour Health. And my role is taking care of the peer education and outreach programs that we have there. So really peer-led roles that we have a lot of volunteers involved in, doing workshops with community members and also doing outreach at sex on-premises venues primarily and other events, mostly about promoting sexual health and other types of health for our LGBTIQ plus and PLHIV communities. What do those workshops look like? They're all open to LGBTIQ plus people, so all of our queer community, with different focuses on the different cohorts or identities that exist in those communities. And really they're a space which is for social connection, but also for learning. So it's a way that we do a little bit of stealth health promotion, where we talk about the key things around sexual health, mental health in general, health and well-being, and really kind of link people in with community and help them find services or pathways to have relevant healthcare access to know the different aspects of their health and how really developing these social networks is really important to connect with others and to reflect on where you are in your various journeys and, yeah, meet new people, which is really fun. Now, this isn't your first time on radio. You're very familiar with the radio studio. (laughs) Tell me about your show on Joy. Yeah, so I'm one of the co-hosts for Well, 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 which is a show about LGBTQ plus health and wellbeing on Joy. We do a weekly show on Thursday nights, which we focus on different topics to do with queer health and wellbeing. It's been really fun. It's something that initially I didn't expect to be involved in when I found myself in health promotion at Thorn Harbour. But it's become probably one of my favourite parts of my role there, being able to talk to different people, learn about different parts of our communities and the different things that are going on and be able to reach people in a really cool format. Yeah, community radio is lots of fun. Community radio, it's all about that relationship with your community and so it kind of it can change as the audience's needs change. This show has certainly changed just in the last 10 weeks. You know, we still find that there's these moments where we're like, oh, we need to come back to this really basic thing. At the moment, we're planning a show around what happens when you're diagnosed with HIV. And there's kind of those basic things that you think of when you think of queer sexual health, people living with HIV, that sort of thing. There's a lot of really rich and interesting content out there in things that you wouldn't necessarily think are directly related to health and well-being. So we often have people who are artists or performers who have, you know, shows or exhibitions on. Usually when there's big festivals, there's always something that pops up that is actually really quite relevant to the health and well-being of our community. So that's been really fun to delve into those sorts of things and learn about those other creative outlets or other impacts that people are having in our communities. A lot of people's mileage can really vary with, you know, what they're learning at school. Yeah, and I think that it's not just the gaps that happen through school and through sex education. There's a lot of gaps that still exist in standard sex education in Australia. But some of the bigger gaps that we see are people who are born overseas, perhaps don't have access to testing or treatment in the same way that we have here in Australia, face different barriers and stigmas relating to culture, family, healthcare systems. So 
that's definitely something that we see a lot of and has really become a big focus in the work that we do. There's really big gaps for other parts of our community who identify as transgender diverse, for example. It's really difficult to find gender-affirming care or just services that people don't have to educate their healthcare professional on everything about gender and about their lives and their basic health needs. Just access something like sexual health testing in a safe, authentic way. Often people have to lie about certain things or or feel like they can't completely be themselves in those settings. And that's a really common thing that we hear a lot of and that we see. But we know that the services that are affirming and that are peer-led, such as Equinox, the peer-led transgender diverse clinic that Thorn Harbour have in Abbotsford, you know, the wait list is always full. And that's a really difficult thing for community to face when they are trying to access something that really should be a basic need. For people who might be listening and they're thinking, well, I have a concern about my health, but they are struggling with access, Mm. where do they go? Yeah, so there's a number of grassroots directories that people have set up over the years. Like, for example, we have at Thorn Harbour Health, if you're looking for sexual health testing or a queer-friendly clinic or GP, there's the clinic search function on the Drama Down Under website which is one of our sexual health websites focused on mainly men who have sex with men but generally has information relevant to everyone. Doctor or doctor directory, so D-O-C-D-I-R. They've been collating recommendations from different parts of the community so you can search for a practitioner based on your identity or your needs and filter through different options that are available Australia-wide. So... There's different kinds of ways that you can go about it. A lot of people still rely on word of mouth. But yeah, I guess the tricky thing is that when clinics are like very obviously queer, very obviously affirming, their wait lists are quite a difficult thing to navigate, especially now that GP access for people generally in Australia has become quite difficult. Especially with not just the queer community, but our kind of younger listeners under 26. Websites like The Drama Down Under. We also have a website called What Works, which is about what works to stop HIV. Finding information about prevention tools, about testing, ways that you can find clinics or GPs that are available to do sexual health testing, for example. It's a really great way for people to empower themselves and and find that information directly and really make an informed decision about what they choose to do with their health and what services they choose to access. It might be a presumption to say, but I think that, you know, as someone who grew up in Melbourne in a not a relatively metro area, but I guess with links to be able to access basic health care, the general thing that people do is see their family GP. That comes with a lot of baggage for a lot of people, especially when you're queer. And so I think that being able to, I guess, be brave and search for different clinicians. If you have a GP or or someone else who you don't get what you're looking for, you're not quite satisfied or comfortable, search for another one. Try someone else. And I know that it can be tricky when places are full, but being patient and really shopping around can help pay off and help you find someone who you are comfortable having a chat with about your sexual health and about your health generally. And I think that's really important to to really seek that rather than step back and maybe not 
try to pursue it. Definitely keep trying and it usually aligns. A big thing for you is, is that prevention mm. right, and getting tested. Now, Jacinta, I've never been good at tests. <laughs> They're not the kinds of tests where maybe you're getting an A+, plus, oh. <laughs> but they are really important. Regular testing and sexual health screening is probably the most crucial thing when it comes to your sexual health. And How really, regular are we talking? Three months is probably the ideal regular testing period. If you are you know, having casual sex, if you have multiple sex partners, three months helps cover the window period for most STIs and HIV. If you don't have sex as regularly or like with many different people, say you're in like a long-term relationship, then every six to 12 months is what you should be doing at least. And it's really important to get that regular testing so that you're in charge of your health, you know what's going on with your body. A lot of STIs don't have symptoms um, and the only way that you'll know that you have an SDI is if you get tested. And, you know, it might be quite intimidating to get tested and, and to know if you have an SDI, but STIs are treatable and it's more important for you to know that you have it so that you can access treatment and you don't have further health implications, you don't pass it on to other people without knowing if you have had sex with other people when you've potentially had that STI, you can let them know and you can let them know anonymously through different ways that we have. It's a really great way to be in control of your health and be able to access what you need to deal with whatever might be happening with your sexual health. Some people might be listening and go, well, if most STIs don't have any symptoms, well, what's the point? Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, the thing is that while they might not have symptoms in the short term, they can definitely have symptoms and implications in the long term. You know, it can lead to things like infertility, other inflammation kind of conditions. Even thinking about something like HIV, you need treatment to be able to live a healthy life. If you don't know that you have HIV because you're not tested, you could be living undiagnosed and be passing it on to other people, but also, you know, your body starts to have the virus spread through it and then there's obviously really big implications for that. HIV is no longer a death sentence. That hopefully is more widely known now, but that's only if you have access to treatment. If you don't have access to treatment, particularly if you're not tested and you just have no idea, you do still get very sick and have AIDS-related diseases. We have made a lot of progress on HIV, but we've also made a lot of progress on what's now called MPOX. Mm. That was a huge thing last year. And then just, yeah. you don't hear about it anymore. What, what has happened with MPOX? It's a virus that did have a, quite a large outbreak this time last year, so around Pride events in the US and Europe. There was a lot of fear because it's MPOX. There was this pox, this rash that was showing up that was really uh, quite horrific, quite painful. But also there was the, the fear of stigma of this being labelled as the next gay disease, just mm. like HIV or AIDS was back in the day. It was m mostly, and in some places, only spreading amongst the sexual networks of men who have sex with men, so gay and bi men and other people who have sex with those people. It was kind of this really looming threat of being a very stigmatising, painful kind of infection that had the potential to have a really big outbreak. Yeah, I remember 
reading about it last year and reading about the symptoms and thinking like the facial lesions, I've already got a face for radio. Like that would have been game <laughs> over for me. Yeah. But now there's been that that progress. Yes, yes. And I think that the thing that it comes down to is vaccination. At the time there was a vaccine which was similar to or, or the same as the smallpox vaccine. And so there was only a very small amount of that vaccine available worldwide. And so there was a, quite a lot of panic around what do we do if we don't have enough vaccine? They kind of changed the method of how it was delivered to people. So it was what they call subcutaneous injection. So where they inject it under the dermal layer of the skin rather than a standard in the arm flu shot procedure. And so then there was also this stigma around by doing this subcutaneous injection, it was leaving a mark on people's skin for a number of weeks. And so it was like, oh, you can see if someone's had the MPOX vaccine and you know that there's someone who is a man who has sex with men. And so a lot of fear and, and kind of panic around the whole situation. But in saying that, the community really turned up and got vaccinated. We had thousands and thousands of people just here in Melbourne who came to pop-up clinics at various places and got their first dose of the vaccine. And then when it was possible, people had their second dose of the vaccine. And I guess the really great thing about MPOX is that you do only need those two doses and then you're covered basically for life. It's not something that you need, you know, a dose of every year to maintain your resistance to the virus. People got vaccinated. In some cases, people changed how they were having sex and they were more aware of symptoms of the virus. So what we would hope people generally do if you're feeling unwell, if you have cold or flu or fever symptoms, you don't go and have sex with people. We did start to see an outbreak, particularly here in Melbourne and New South Wales, kind of levelled off and then dropped off almost completely. And we've only seen really a small handful of cases come into Australia, mainly by international travellers. There are a few cases around the time of World Pride in Sydney, but besides that, the threats really backed off. But of course, we're still encouraging people to get vaccinated if they are at risk and they haven't yet had their vaccination or if you haven't yet had your second dose. Getting that extra protection from the second dose is really important and, like I said, basically covers you for the rest of your life. It is good to still be vigilant, not just around MPOX, but a range of STIs. And I was talking with a, a friend recently. Earlier you were saying that there were anonymous ways of informing your past sexual partners about an STI, but her situation is she was talking to me about, well, how do I tell my current partner? Mm. Disclosure is a massive thing for people. Obviously, when there's so much stigma people face, it can be really quite scary to have to say to someone, hey, I have this SEI or I have this thing that I really need to talk to you about so that you know like you're my sexual partner. And that can be difficult if it's a long-term relationship and it can be difficult if it's just a casual hookup as well. You can't really guess what people's reaction will be, but it is something that is really important. And I think that being honest and, and practicing communication, it is a part of consent as well. It's really important to be having those discussions with your partners, no matter how well you know them. Being able to share and be honest with people so that they are aware if there is a risk of them also receiving that STI. But in most cases, if you do know that you have an STI, you're most likely on treatment. 
If it's something that you have for a long time, like for the rest of your life, something like herpes, for example, that flares up and also like isn't so much present symptomatically, it's something that is treatable and isn't necessarily passed on. If you are on top of your health and what's going on with your symptoms. So having that discussion with your partner is a really great way to help break down that stigma as well, to be like, hey, I have this thing, but, you know, you're safe, you're not going to get it. But, you know, when was the last time you were tested? Do you get regularly tested? Again, having that conversation around testing and knowing about your body, it can be really daunting and that's why there are ways to do it which are anonymous and certainly is useful for when you do have casual partners perhaps multiple casual partners there's anonymous text lines or emails that can be generated so that they get a notification that says someone that you've been in contact with like sexually has this SDI you should go get tested but when it's a I guess a long-term partner and you haven't yet told them it's really important to still have that conversation if you feel like you have maybe left it for a little while and not said anything. It's never too late. And if you do feel like you need some advice or some extra support around it, you can definitely reach out to the sexual health clinics, especially the peer-led ones. Reach out to somewhere like Thorn Harbour Health and just get some advice on what to say or how to bring it up. It's really important to have that communication in any relationship, in any partnership. Before you go, it is a very big year for Thorn Harbour Health. What's going on? It's Thorn Harbour Health's 40th anniversary this year. There's a number of different events and celebrations on and a lot of recognition of the massive amount of activism that has gone into the organisation since we've existed in the last 40 years, but also leading up to that moment of the Victorian AIDS Action Committee, as it was first known, being born in 1983. We have a really rich history. A lot of the people that were involved in the creation of the organisation are still around and are still active leaders in our communities people like Alison Thorne, who quite famously is the socialist feminist who stood up at a, an AIDS meeting back in 83 and said, what are we doing about this? We need to do something. When our communities were facing quite terrifying examples of, of death and disease that were happening overseas, especially in the US, in 83, it was just off the back of decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. There were really big gay liberation movements happening, especially around the universities at the time. So the people who were involved in the creation of Thorn Harbour Health were student unionists or other people involved in the gay liberation movement who had been at uni, come out and were really active in these grassroots political circles. At the time, AIDS and HIV was a political crisis. It wasn't just a health crisis, it was a political crisis. And thankfully in Australia, our government really stepped up and worked with community at the time and helped mobilise a response to this really massive thing that was happening overseas and beginning to happen in Australia. So when we talk about HIV histories, we were kind of on the forefront and had really great government support, which is, yeah, had obviously an outstanding legacy. But the people who were directly involved in it, Alison Thorne, Phil Carswell, David Menadieu, 
lots and lots of different people are still really active in those circles and will be sharing a lot of their thoughts and their memories at this time. So if anyone's interested in attending those kinds of events, the forums and the exhibitions, all of those are on the Thorn Harbour Health website. And it's a really great chance to to learn about the history of the HIV epidemic in Australia and in Victoria. And yeah, celebrate how our organisation has really developed and, and continued to uphold community strength and connection for the last 40 years, which mm. is a massive achievement. A time for, for reflection. What is your relationship to the queer community? My relationship to the queer community is something that I think I've always had, even when I didn't realise it. I really came to terms with the way that I identify and the way that I find my belonging community through my studies. So I did gender studies at university, I guess kind of linking in with that legacy of, I hate to say the cliche, but finding yourself (laughs) Um, away from home, learning about the gay liberation movement, the feminist movements, past and present, queer and trans theory, all of the big messy, amazing stuff I see throughout our community and through the work that we do on the ground in crisis situations, but also the love and care that our community have for each other and and really hold each other, regardless of how connected we are or not. I think that my relationship has just continued growing over the years. I've been directly linked to it. You know, I'm still a young person. I'm only 25 years old, but I feel like I am quite privileged to be surrounded by some really significant leaders in our communities and some really wonderful people who are doing quite difficult work on the ground. There's a lot of work to still be done to support each other and to remain mobilised and and really have that solidarity for each other, no matter where we identify or belong in the community. 